All right, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this opportunity, this time to gather together as your children, as your sons and daughters, to worship you, to praise you. Lord, I pray that you just bless our time of reading your word, of of talking about it, Lord. I pray that um, the Holy Spirit will just uh, pierce our hearts and our minds, that we can set any distractions out of our hearts and our minds, Lord, and we can focus on you and your love for us. Lord, I pray for boldness and I pray for wisdom as I preach. pray that it's your word being proclaimed. We love you, Jesus, and we're thankful for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to be continuing our series through here. And of course, all my notes are out of order, so I'll be multitasking for a second. John chapter 5, we're going to be continuing in John chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I just have a little bit of a, of a PSA. And if you're like, what's a PSA? It's a public service announcement. All right, I want to make sure that every one of you have one of these in your house. Now, they don't teach you this in school or even in college, but I don't know if you can see it. What this is is a carbon monoxide detector. Right? Now, the danger, what this little device does is it protects us from something called carbon monoxide, which is a very dangerous gas, and and it easily poisons people. And when this device is working properly, right, you got to make sure you put the right batteries. I tested it this morning. The batteries are good. So, right. But in order for this to work correctly, the device will flash, and it will have this annoying, obnoxious beep. And it's designed to not be ignored. It's designed to, to startle you a little bit, and give you a little bit of a, of a healthy fear because this should not be making noises. If it is, that means there's carbon monoxide in your house. And why is this so important? A little, sci- not a science lesson, but a little bit of, of, of what carbon monoxide is. Carbon monoxide has no odor. It has no taste. You can't see it. And when you're exposed to high amounts of carbon monoxide, some of the symptoms are you become tired, you have a headache, you, get, you, you become nauseous. And most people who experience a lot of these symptoms, of car, like carbon monoxide poisoning, they overlook it because it's very common symptoms of the flu, of a cold, of being exhausted or having a long day. And what happens is, eventually, carbon monoxide will lull you to sleep. It puts you out, it makes you unconscious, and, you wait, and it's a sleep you never wake up from. It, it, it's, it's a silent killer. That's what it's known as. Now, One of the most dangerous things, here's the link to why am I talking about carbon monoxide. Here's the link here on the spiritual side of things. One of the most dangerous things when it comes to Christianity, in my opinion, the silent killer is oftentimes something called legalism. Legalism. So this morning we're going to talk about that. We're going to see it exposed in the hearts of the Pharisees. But legalism can easily sneak into any church and it kills the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a silent killer because oftentimes legalism will be rooted in some elements of biblical truth, some, and then eventually it gets warped more and more and more and gets further and further away of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for us as Christians, our spiritual detector, as a carbon monoxide should be in our homes to detect the, the gas, our spiritual detector, detector should be this, God's Word. God's Word. Everything needs to be checked against this. 
the Bible is, is the ultimate authority for us as Christians. That means if I say something from the pulpit, I as the pastor, if I say something that goes against God's Word, who's wrong? Me. You could point to me. You're allowed to point. Me. I'm wrong. Or if our church believes or does something that's against God's Word, who's wrong? Our church. If culture says something that's against what the Bible says, against God's Word, who's wrong? Culture. So as we continue our series through John's Gospel, we're going to go and see another miracle of Jesus. It's a back-to-back miracle. Last week we saw a miracle. Jesus heals an official son from over 16 miles away. He's in a different region in Galilee. And the miracle that Jesus did, the healing of this official son, it led a whole household to true, genuine, saving faith in Jesus. And today, as we look at another miracle recorded in John's Gospel, we're going to see three main things. We'll see Jesus' miracle. We'll see legalism exposed. And then we're going to see the Sabbath controversy. So if you have your Bibles, John chapter 5, I'll read verse 1, and I'll read the first paragraph. John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And to give a little bit of context as to where we're at and what's going on, and what's this pool of Bethesda, We left off last week, Jesus was up north in the region of Galilee. He heals the man's son from miles away, and we discussed how Jesus is much more than just a miracle man. The people in Galilee, the Jews as a whole, will reject him as their Messiah and Savior, but they accept him as a miracle man. They're they're drawn to the excitement of the amazing things Jesus is doing, but they're not true believers in who Jesus says he is. Now we read that Jesus... Right? He just went to Galilee. Seemingly, he's in Galilee. And now, in the start of chapter 5, he's going back down to Jerusalem. Back down to the temple. And he's going there because it's a feast. John doesn't tell us what specific feast it was. There's believed that there's, there's three feasts throughout the year that Jews, uh, male Jews are required to go to Jerusalem to attend. But between John chapter 4, which was last week, and John chapter 5, what I just read, John doesn't record any other miracles or anything else that Jesus does in Galilee. It's interesting, there's a whole lot of things that John skips in this section. He doesn't highlight them. In Matthew chapter 4 to chapter 7, in Mark chapter 1 to chapter 9, in Luke chapter 4 to chapter 9, it all has to do with Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. And there's amazing miracles and amazing things that Jesus does that John for whatever reason, the purpose of his gospel, he doesn't highlight them. He moves right now to Jesus going back to Jerusalem. And to give a little bit of a context as to the power and, and, the, and the publicity and the fame of Jesus, 
In Matthew chapter 4, it's the, the section right before the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7. Matthew says this in Matthew 4.23. You can turn there, but you don't have to. It's a few verses. It says, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and Jesus heals them or healed them. The great crowds followed him from Galilee and to Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and far beyond the Jordan. Now, in that seemingly four verses in John, he's highlighting that Jesus' ministry in Galilee, while Jesus is there, he pretty much eliminates all disease. Everybody that came to Jesus, all these people who are hurting and need healing, Jesus heals them. He does many miracles in Galilee. But John, he only has seven recorded in his gospel. And each miracle that John lays out, he is there for a specific reason to point people to Jesus being God. So he doesn't talk and list all these miracles, but if you want, you can read the other gospels and see a lot of the specific things that Jesus does. At the end of John's Gospel, John says this in John 21, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? So John is saying at the end of his Gospel, if I was to write down everything, everything, it would be innumerable. It would be uh, so many books. The world itself could not contain it. Again, for John's gospel, he just went. He he, he shares a back-to-back miracle. There's only seven in the gospel. We we read one last week. Now he goes and highlights another one that we just read in John chapter five, at a place called the Pool of Bethesda, and this pool is located outside the city walls and it's north of the temple in Jerusalem. This pool actually dates back to the Hellenistic time period in Jerusalem. The ancient Greeks had a cult for the pagan god of healing, and during the peak of their empire, the people in these cults would go out all among the Greek empire and make these healing centers, these places of waters for their Greek god. And one of these pools was still in Jerusalem. It was located in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if in your Bible, <clears throat> my Bible goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, I'm not sure if your Bible actually has a verse 4. I believe, I think the King James keeps verse 4 in there. <clears throat> but my Bible has a little star. And what that does is it sends you down to the bottom of the Bible with a little footnote. And the omitted verse 4 is this. Well, verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And here's the omitted part waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring was healed of whatever disease he had. Now a little bit of research about this. This verse is not found in some of the most earliest manuscripts of, found of John's Gospel. It's believed that the scholars added it later in to add more context of, of more location about what the Pool of Bethesda is and why all these people were here and why this man is trying to get into the water. Right? Most Bible have a little asterisk pointing out 
And it's, this, it's really the added legend of this pool down in Bethesda. And in, in Jesus' time, during this time, <clears throat> this pool was a sad place to see. It was full of sick people. It was full of blind, paralyzed, lame, hurting people who were all waiting and hoping for the chance to be healed. These people believed in a pagan superstition, a pagan legend, and they also then they attributed a, a sort of spiritual twist of their own on it. Right? Every, every so often the water would actually would bubble up and would be stirred and would be moved. And they believed that at that moment an angel of God dipped his wings in the water and stirred the water and it was like a race to the water. If you got in there first, you were healed. But looking back, as archaeologists have found the pool and have studied it, beneath the pool there's a subterranean stream which every now and then would stir and would cause bubbles in this pool of Bethesda and disturb the water. The people in Jesus' day, these people were hopeless. They had a hope in a pagan legend, in a superstition, in a hope that they could be the first in this water. It's actually, there's not evidence that anybody was actually healed from these waters. Rather, it was a hope of a legend. And they put their own spiritual twist. Well, it's, it's really an angel that's dipping his wings in and God's going to heal us. For these people who are here, their only chance of healing was to be first in the pool. And because of this, people made it their home to be right next to the pool. They lived under these roofed colonnades. It was a place of homelessness, despair, and as I mentioned, it's filled with hurting people. And I'm going to say something that's a little bit of a paradox, but it's full of, of hopeless people who are hoping in the water. Right? It's a little, a little weird to think about that, but they're ultimately hopeless. They're hoping in something that's not going to help them. And in this place, this was a place where no religious person, no Pharisee would dare hang out here. Why? It's full of, it's full of people who are hurting, people who, are, who would be deemed unclean ceremonially. And here we see Jesus entering in, into this area and he performs a miracle. In verse 5, we see the healing of a man. I'll read it. One man was there who had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. <clears throat> what we see is Jesus sees a man who spent most of his life, if not his whole life, being lame. Staying on a mat, on the floor, unable to walk, unable to move on his own. And he's unable to make it to the pool, to the waters, on his own. And I love it, Jesus, supernaturally knowing his condition, knowing this man spent his whole life paralyzed, he looks at him and he asks him a question. He says to the man, do you want to be healed? And, and as you read that, it might seem a little bit of a silly question to ask this man. And you could almost hear this man's desperation of like his need of wanting to be healed and his response. In a sense, he's saying, do I want to be healed? Of course I do. Why do you think I'm next to this pool? The only thing is no one is able and willing to help me. 
I'm all alone. And when I get to the pool, I'm not the first one. I can never make it there on my own. If only someone could lift me up and place me in the water, then I'll be healed. That, that's basically his response back to Jesus. And it got me thinking, why would Jesus ask this man this question? Do you want to be healed? There's two possibilities. Maybe after years and years and, and his frustration, maybe he was hopeless. Maybe he was just hopelessly waiting, and waiting to die on that mat. Or, maybe being healed would radically transform and change this man's life. What that would mean is he would have no more handouts, he would have no, no more need of assistance. He'd have to go back into society and function again after being lame, after being out of society for 38 years, relying on others. He's going to have to what? Be a part of society, take care of himself, probably find a job and feed himself. And don't miss what happens. It's amazing. In verse 8, Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, he took up his bed and he walked. This man who spent a lifetime laying down, unable to stand, he just stood up. He just picked up his mat and he walked. Jesus' healing of this man was both immediate and it was also complete. It says at once, as soon as Jesus said the command, as soon as he said stand up, the man at once stood up. If you know anything, if you don't use a muscle for a long time, that muscle gets weak. That muscle gets, gets really just used to not being used. So after 38 years, this man's legs are probably little. There's probably no muscle on them. right? But we see the completion of Jesus' miracle. This man stands up. He's able to support his weight. He's able to walk away. There's no physical therapy needed. There's no time of having to rebuild his muscles and, and even learn how to walk again. We see the fullness and the immediate miracle of Jesus Christ to this man. Now Jesus, what's interesting, he heals a man whose faith was in a superstitious legend of the healing waters. The waters that he believed could heal him was the same water this man could never make it to. And I really think this, this shows us, as I look at it, it gives us a little bit of a clue of, of really the, the hopelessness of religion. And what I mean is this. People try and they try so hard to be good. They try to, to earn or they try to get their way to heaven based on what they're doing. They have a faith in something that they can never ultimately obtain because their faith is not fully in Jesus. It's in themselves. Religion says this, that you have to do this or you have to do that and then you'll be saved. Where the Gospel of Jesus says this, no matter what you do, it will never be enough. And instead of being like, okay, that's bad news, right? you could say, well, the good news is we never have to. Because why? Jesus came and He died on our, in our place on that cross. He came and paid the penalty for our sins. He was good and perfect on our behalf. We can never obtain heaven on our own without Him. And true and genuine faith in Jesus is how we get eternal life. It's not about works. It's not about being a good person. It's not about thinking of this grand cosmic scale of, okay, I have to do more good than bad, and, and I just hope that when I die and get to heaven, my goods will outweigh my bad. That's nowhere in the Gospel. 
That's nowhere in God's Word. It's all about the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus. And when we come to Christ, we are to repent. And that word means to turn away, to actually do a 180, to change directions from our old behaviors, and to pursue Jesus. We're to live as He lived. We're to love as He loved. Just as this man's life would be radically transformed when he's healed, the same is true for us when we come to saving faith. The Holy Spirit gives us a new heart and a new mind. We remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It's by the power of God and the Holy Spirit that we're born again. Not by our own power, but by God's mercy and grace. And what Jesus does right here is something extraordinary. He's healed someone who spent a whole lifetime not being able to walk. And what is the response that this man receives next? If you have your notes, number two, we're going to see legalism exposed. In verse 9 we read, Now that day was the Sabbath. And that's important and we'll come back to that. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your mat, oh, take up your bed and walk. And the Jews asked him, Who is this man who said it to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now the man who had healed him, or the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In those first couple of verses, this is what we see. We see an overlooked miracle. There's no joy, there's no awe, there's no amazement, there's no celebration from the Jews, from the Pharisees, of the, of the sight of the lame man now being able to walk. There's no celebration of this miracle. None of them rejoiced with this man. Rather, they missed the miracle. And, and, and why did they miss it? Because of the law. They go right to the law. Now to put it in today's language of really the crazy reaction from these Pharisees, I'm going to give a little bit of a story. Just, just imagine for a second. Imagine you had a neighbor, right? someone you've lived, lived next to your whole life, who has been paralyzed his whole life. Right? Imagine every day you see him and he needs help getting moved. He can't do anything on his own. Now you wake up one Saturday morning after a late night at work, and you just got woken up out of a deep sleep by the sound of a lawnmower. And of course you look at the clock and it's 6 a.m. Now again, I think many of us have been here before. How do you usually act? Angry, right? It's too early to mow the lawn. What are you doing? Now imagine you look out your window, and who do you see mowing their lawn is your paralyzed neighbor. He's just joyfully there, whistling, and he's, he's, he's cutting his grass. Any sane person's response would be like this. What? You'd probably open your window. Your anger would be, be gone. You'd probably be like, what in the world? And you'd say, what happened? Who, like, how are you walking? Were you faking the whole time? What's going on? This is a miracle. Right? You'd be shocked by it. 
But the Pharisee's response would look something like this. You open up the window, you look at your neighbor, and you say, would you keep it down? It's 6 o'clock in the morning. I'm trying to sleep. Put that away. It's too early. Go back inside. That would be a pretty crazy thing to do. Why? Because someone's life is radically different. Someone who's been paralyzed their whole life is now able to walk and stand and, and mow their lawn. Yet rather than rejoicing that a man can walk again, the Pharisees, They seemingly miss the miracle because they're blinded by the law. They go right to the law. They're more concerned with their man-made Sabbath laws. Let me say that again. Their man-made Sabbath laws. Not God-ordained, man-made Sabbath laws being violated rather than celebrating that a man's life has been radically transformed and a miracle happened. I would say in that instance, we see a clear picture of legalism of the legalism of the Pharisees. Instead of rejoicing in the grace of Jesus, the Pharisees go to the law. Legalism comes in and says this, grace isn't enough. There are some churches that preach a gospel that is different, that is heretical to the gospel of Jesus. Their gospel sounds something like this. You need Jesus' death on the cross, but you also need to do X, Y, and Z. You need the Gospel, but you also need good works. You need the Gospel, but you also have to come every Sunday and you can't miss a Sunday or else you're under church discipline and if you go into the church discipline and you get kicked out of the church, right? that's legalism. It's rooted in some elements of truth, but it comes in and it distorts and it twists the Gospel, which is grace, into what? Works. Into, Into a list of do's and don'ts. Paul, when he's writing to the Galatian church, Legalism has always been here since the beginning of the church. He's writing to the Galatian people and he's combating against the legalistic heretics who are entering these churches. They're teaching the people that in order to have, to have, uh, to have salvation, to be saved, you have to first convert to Judaism, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the Mosaic law, and then you can follow Jesus and then you're saved. They're saying that it's Jesus' grace plus the obedience in the Old Testament law is what saves you. And Paul reminds the early church in Galatia of the freedom that we have in Christ from the law because of the grace of Jesus. It's not about the obedience of fulfilling all of the laws. It's rather Jesus did it and it's our, it's our faith in the grace and the death of Jesus on the cross. Getting into heaven, having eternal life, obtaining salvation, right? All these different words that mean the same thing. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. If that's the case, let's be honest, none of us would make it to heaven. We'd fail. We'd fail. I I fail every day. And the Bible says the price of our sin, if we try to do it on our own, the price of our sin is death. But Jesus came to be our Savior. He took our death penalty on the cross. He gave us grace. The Bible says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's by faith alone in Jesus, not by the law, not by good works, not by following traditions, not by coming to church every day. It's not all those, but it's by faith alone in Jesus that we're saved. And the sad reality of legalism is that it's crept its way into churches 
today all over the world. And the sad thing about it is legalism robs joy. Legalism steals our joy. Imagine the constant pressure of having to make sure every day you follow all these insane amount of laws, all these insane amount of rules. It would be like this weight on your back and you're like, you'd, you'd be afraid you're walking on eggshells every time. Okay, am I allowed to do this? I don't remember. I gotta look. Okay, let me look real quick in my notes. Oh, oh okay, I, I could do that. Right? What a sad way to live. There's no joy in living that way. Rather than rejoicing in the freedom that Jesus has given, legalism comes in and it robs joy. People don't get to experience the amazing love, the amazing grace of Jesus because they're taught that their salvation depends on how obedient they are to man-made laws. Going back to this text, this man who was just healed, he stopped. Right? The first response is what? The Pharisees said, you're breaking the Sabbath law. You're carrying your bed. You're not allowed to carry things. It's the Sabbath day. He's caught breaking this law that's punishable by death. The Pharisees could have picked up stones and threw them at him. So they're demanding, who did this? Who told you to do this? And the man says, the man who healed me. But I, I don't know his name. I don't know. His joy of being healed has most likely and probably turned to fear. Right? As he tells them, he was told to do it. And he doesn't know who told him to do it. A little later in, in verse 14, we see Jesus' warning. A few verses later, Jesus actually finds this healed man in the temple and he gives him a warning in verse 14. He says this to him, See you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now in Jesus' time, in the culture, the Jews attributed, they believed that if you were sick, if you had diseases, if you had physical disabilities, 100% of the time, that was always due to sin. And what that means, if, if you were blind... It means that somebody in your household sinned and God is punishing you by giving you blindness or you sinned and done something so bad against God that God gave you blindness for your sin. Right? That's, that's what they believed. And we actually have a story of Jesus healing somebody and the Pharisees asked who sinned, him or his, or his parents. Right? So that was part of their culture that each one of these people who had these diseases or afflictions were deserving of it because of un, some unresolved bad sin they've done before God. The funny thing is, we're all sinners. Right? It, 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 we're, we've, we're all guilty of sin. Now again, maybe Jesus goes to this man and gives him this warning because maybe the man who just physically has been healed, maybe he's thinking, well, now that I'm physically healed, maybe I'm spiritually healed. Maybe I'm spiritually good. Maybe I can do whatever I want. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to obey God and I don't have to w walk with Him. Right? Maybe there was a little temptation where Jesus takes the physical ailment, the physical, and, gi and gives life back into his legs, maybe he's tempted. Hey, I think I'm good now. I'm spiritually good now. But regardless of this warning, it got me thinking. Right? Jesus says, see, uh, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Right? What, what's worse than being lame for 38 years? What's worse than being hopeless, relying on others, Never making it to the water for years. What's worse than that? I think Jesus is pointing a little hint to the eternity in hell. 
an eternity in hell. I've heard someone say this beautifully, and it's well known. I didn't make this up. They said, if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian right now, the here and now in this life, this is the worst it'll ever be. Why? Because when we die, we're going to spend an eternity in glory with no pain, no suffering, in our heavenly bodies, rejoicing in heaven. Now on the flip side, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christ follower, if you do not have faith in Jesus, this life is the best it will ever be. Why? Because apart from the saving faith of Christ, there's an eternity spent in hell without Him. And let me just say this. Hell is a physical, real place. It's not a metaphorical place. It's not just a, a, this, 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 this scary story. It's real. Jesus actually spoke a lot more about hell than he did about heaven in his ministry on earth. After hearing this warning from Jesus, what does this man do? It, I, I read it and I get a little sad because I don't know the whole context of this guy's mind. But what does he do? He goes back to the leaders the Word actually says He seeks them out. He goes out of His way to find these Pharisees, to find these Jews, to tell them the name of the man who healed Him. Jesus. Now, He either threw Jesus under the bus, right, if you read it that way, maybe, but think about it. This man is probably afraid he's going to get stoned to death at any moment. Right? I, 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 sometimes we don't give him enough credit, right? Fear is powerful. But for whatever reason, I would say this, it's in God's ordained timing, right? He goes, he tells the Pharisees the name of the man. Jesus is the one who told me to pick up my bed. Jesus is the one who healed me. And as a result of that, we're going to see a shift in Jesus' ministry. But if you have your notes, number three, the last thing we'll look at is the Sabbath controversy. In verse 16, we'll pick up reading. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father, making Himself equal with God. The biggest problem, the biggest concern with what Jesus did for this man was actually the day he did it on. The biggest problem the Pharisees had is, 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 is really the day that Jesus did this miracle on. Not only did Jesus break the Sabbath law, the man-made Sabbath laws, he also commanded and told this man to carry his bed, which was against the man-made Sabbath laws. And I love Jesus' response to this. It says they're persecuting him because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 17, he answers them, My father is working until now, and so am I, or, and I am working. What Jesus does in that one sentence angers them even more because he's now comparing himself to God. He's comparing himself with God. He's putting himself on the same level as God the Father. He's saying something like this, Well, if God's working on the Sabbath, and if God never takes the day off, He's always sustaining the universe up until this very moment, Jesus says, then so am I. Then so am I. I'm working as well. And what the Jews had done, and I didn't want to take so much time to go into this because this could be a whole other sermon. I won't go there though. The Jews had taken the Sabbath, 
what God instituted for man's joy, for, for, for God's glory, a day of rest to what? To remember the Lord. To set it apart to worship the Lord. It's a holy day. The Jews took that Sabbath day and they twisted it into a list of things you can and cannot do. There are actually 39 individual different categories of forbidden activities. And in each one of those sections, there's a whole lot of laws of what you can't and can do. Some of these categories are this. On the Sabbath, you can't carry anything. You can't burn anything. You can't extinguish anything. You can't write anything. You can't erase anything. You can't comb anything. You can't cook. You can't wash anything. What does that mean? If your house is on fire, you can't put it out. You have to watch it burn. If you... Well, I won't, I won't go. But not only was there these extreme list of things that they couldn't do, but it's funny, people started to find loopholes in these laws. They, they, they found ways where they're, they're not technically breaking the law, and they're still obedient to this man-made law, but they're stretching really what this law says they can and can't do. Here's an example. There's a law on the Sabbath that you can't walk further than a thousand yards from your household. So people would get around that by, by tying a piece of rope to their house, and they'd walk the length of their rope, and as soon as they got to the end of their rope, since that rope is technically an extension of their household, they can now walk a thousand miles further from the end of this rope. Right? That, that's a... That's a loophole. Another thing that's just silly, you weren't allowed to carry anything. So if you wanted to bring a handkerchief from the top of the stairs to the bottom of the stairs, you actually had to put it on around and wear it around your neck, then walk down the stairs, and then take it off your neck and, and, and put it down. You technically weren't carrying it, you were wearing it. Right? That's, that's how insane this, this, this list of legalism things were. But not only that, they were trying to find work, workarounds with them. Something silly, they're not, allowed, they're not allowed to look in a mirror. Why? Because if you see a gray hair, you might be tempted to pluck it. And if you pluck your gray hair, you're breaking the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, you're allowed to spit on the ground. But you better be careful where you spit. If you spit in the dirt, and then you walk over and you spread some dirt on that spit, you're just guilty of cultivating the soil. You, you just committed a work. That, that You violated the Sabbath law. That's how insane these laws were. The Sabbath laws man-made were a burden to the people. It was fear. It was a constant burden. And it robbed them of their worship of the Lord. How could you possibly live in a day following these laws? I'd be afraid. I wouldn't want to leave my house and be seen in public. Again, Jesus, with what He did, He's comparing Himself with God. If God has sustained the universe, if God is working, if everything is relying on Him and He's continually working, even on the Sabbath day, Jesus says, then so am I. So am I. I'm going to continue working same as my Father. So He broke the Sabbath. He commanded somebody to break the man-made Sabbath. They're angry. Now Jesus just compared Himself on the same level as God. They're more angry. Verse 18 this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not, uh, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but even, was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
From this point on in John's Gospel, there's a noticeable shift in Jesus' ministry. There's going to be a shift in persecution and rejection of Jesus from the Jews as a whole. And this will eventually lead Him to the death on the cross. Not only was Jesus breaking the man-made Sabbath laws, but He called God His own Father. The, the Jews never did that. Jesus calls God His own Father. And He makes Himself equal with God. Right? Jesus, if God's working on the Sabbath, then so am I. It's a claim of the full deity and the equality with God. Jesus is comparing Himself on the same level as God the Father. As John continues writing his Gospel, that's one of the main points that he continues to highlight. He talks about who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Word became flesh. The eternal God from the beginning who came to pursue us. The One who gave us salvation. Who died on the cross for our sins. I have a real problem when people say something like this. Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, the problem is right here, He just did. He just claimed. He was crucified for that very reason. And what I love about the Gospel, and, and as we read and, and see it through John's Gospel, we have a God who loves us so much. A God who came down and pursued us. And John 1 who tabernacled amongst us to purchase us with His own blood. And John will continue to reveal that's who Jesus is. And from this miracle, we see that Jesus has power over sickness, over death, over disease, over the paralytic people and their afflictions, but not only that, but Jesus is God. And I want to encourage you, if you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the sad reality is, you have to pay for your sins. Right? You're guilty of, of breaking God's law. You're, you're, you're guilty before the Lord. Where we have Jesus, if your faith is in Jesus, His death on the cross, as a substitute, He paid our debt. He died in our place. We're no longer having to face the wrath of God, but we have freedom in Christ to receive the grace and the blessings that are due for being children of God. My hope and my prayer and my encouragement is that you put your faith in Jesus if you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time where we can gather together as Your church, as a body of believers to worship You, to be encouraged by Your Word. Lord, I pray that as, as we leave here, we're reminded of how powerful You are that You have power over sickness and death. But Lord, help us to never just look at You as some, as some prophet or miracle man, but rather You are God. And Jesus, we praise You and we thank You so much for coming down from heaven to earth and dying on the cross for our sins. We thank You for taking the wrath of God that's due for us on Yourself for paying the price. And Lord, as we, as we gather around the communion table this morning, I pray that we're able to just use the remaining worship time to prepare our hearts and our minds to reflect on Your death and the blood that was shed on the cross for us as we think and reflect on the grace that You showed us, the love that You gave us. 
Lord, I pray we never take it for granted. And Lord, I continue to pray for gospel moments this week that you can put us in situations where we have to stretch or be stretched in our faith, but also tell others about you. Lord, I pray that for boldness and confidence as we go out and continue to make disciples and be salt and light to the community around us. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.